Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me. Down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am always joined, by the feud, thoughtful, and thankful Mad Wizard Merwin, because it's the day before Thanksgiving for us here. It is. Well, what does feud mean? You know, mighty thews, like you have giant arms, strong muscles, oh, things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's not me. But, I, I know, but I thought it'd be funny. But maybe it is the Mad Wizard. I, I don't know. It, I, I mean, I'm sure it was at some point, right? Beneath the all Mad those Wizard robes? Is, Probably, yeah. I could see that. I mean, I imagine at some point the Mad Wizard was feud, mm-hmm. right? Yes. <laughs> but I am definitely thoughtful and thankful. I am thankful yeah, that go. we get a chance to do this every week and that there's games out there to be played and, and that we have a lot to talk about this week. Yeah, we do, actually. Um, So before we get into the announcements part of our show, uh, Chapter 4 of Dragon Heist is this complex kind of thing, and we're going to break it up into three weeks. So you'll be hearing about the the fourth chapter of Dragon Heist for the next three weeks. We'll we'll get into that a little bit later, but to get to announcements, first things first, uh, getting started on the DMs Guild, part one, your first product. So this is a Gnome Stew article written by Jenna Adcock, who uh, she's on the writing team now for the some of the adventures that are coming out for Winter Fantasy in a trilogy that I'm helping write, right? Mm, yes, she is. Mm. So this is some really good information on what you can and cannot do on the DMs Guild. Uh, and Sean, you had some thoughts about this article too? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great article, first of all. I think Jen really knocks it out of the park when it comes to clarifying certain points that may not be crystal clear in some of the official documentation, as well as explaining some of the basics for when you do put your own content up. And some of it seems like it should be a no-brainer, uh, but the problem is no, there is no such thing really as a no-brainer because there are a million different ways that things can go wrong, even with people with brains. Um, so if you do get a chance and you are either interested in putting things up on the DMs Guild or if you are already putting things up on the DMs Guild but need a refresher or, or just need, are looking for some tips, uh, go check out this article. It talks about kind of the initial things of what you can and cannot put up there. Um, via licensing, uh, the difference between kind of the OGL and the SRD, uh, what you should be writing, how you should be writing it, what you, uh, the importance of playtesting, uh, doing covers, art formatting, and then kind of all the legal boilerplate stuff, mm-hmm. logos to use, what not to use, making sure you properly accredit uh, the people that did work uh, on the product, even if it's art. Uh, that that you're using, so especially, all of that stuff is especially in there. if it's art that you're using. Yep, exactly. So it is a really great article, and it's just part one of of at least two parts I know. So uh, check that out because it really is full of great information. It really is. Okay, so that's that. Um, I thought the the interesting thing about that was when she talked about playtesting. She's like, playtesting is important, but it's also good to run the stuff by other people, other GMs, other writers, things like that. That mm-hmm. that That is not something that we necessarily ever say out loud, but it's really good if you can do that, if you can find people that will read your stuff and just take a look over it. Sure. Yeah, as, that's exactly right. As great as playtesting is, um, and you should always do it, there's always some value in running your, your stuff by 
even if it's not someone who you would consider, you know, an expert in the field or anything, just, you know, just an average everyday reader can pick up on things that might be confusing. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, next thing, invasion from the planet of Tarasks. <laughs> so this this thing is just all kinds of ridiculous and it's very awesome, too. So, yeah, this is an adventure. It's very cheap. It's on the DM's Guild. It's written by James Intercaso. Mm -hmm. uh, here's the, the description of the adventure. Halaster Black Cloak, the Mad Wage of Undermountain, always has a contingency in place. As long as Undermountain remains beneath the city of Waterdeep, Halaster can never truly die within its walls. For the dungeon rebuilds the mage's body on the rare occasion when adventurers kill Halaster. Halaster realized that if adventurers destroyed all of Undermountain, a nigh-impossible feat more difficult than even slaying the mage, he would lose his immortality. To further protect his life, Halaster took some of the rooms and halls of Undermountain and flung them across the multiverse, including other worlds of the material plane. With Undermountain spread across existence, the task of permanently killing Halaster is even more difficult. Unfortunately for the mage, a party of adventurers recently killed him in his dungeon beneath the City of Splendors. When Halaster's body reformed, he found himself in Phallix, another world of the material plane inhabited entirely by enormous carnivorous monsters with endless appetites. These scaly bipeds are closely related to the Tarrasque, an infamous monstrosity filled across the worlds of the material plane. Halaster, now obsessed with punishing the adventurers who killed him, began to hatch a plot. If one Tarrasque could level an entire city, what could a planet's worth of the beings do to Faerun? Mm -hmm. It sounds like the best B movie plot ever for a D and D adventure. Oh yeah, I mean this is <laughs> this is like you know let's do Godzilla versus the Tarasks, uh, big time. Yeah, I mean it's first of all it's for twentieth level characters, so right there it's it's completely Gonzo ridiculous, um, just by just by that, yep. and then throw in not just one Tarasks but the planet of the Tarasks, and you've got yourself. A fun evening, and, right. <laughs> and 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 what I like about it is that it, you know, it 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 does have the stakes that a twentieth level adventure should have. Basically, this whole city is in danger. And, city world. Well, yes, the, the, I mean this this whole world, but it starts with the city collapsing around you. So it's not just twentieth level characters in a mano a mano fight. Um, with a monster, it's you have to save this tower. You know, this tower topples over. So now you have to use your resources to not just defeat the monster, but maybe save the people in the tower that's falling. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's that's an epic uh, scene worthy of a 20th level adventure. Yeah, I mean, these are definitely superhero type stories in mm -hmm. D&D, right? As they should be. And uh -huh. it's also it's also one that I don't think Wizards could publish on its own. Um just because of the scope of it, you, you don't see them um, making these kind of great adventures anymore. Great in terms, not in terms of quality, great in terms of scope, right? They, they, yeah. they're, they're not doing these 20th level adventures, although uh, Dungeon of the Mad Mage does. Uh, but even then, it's, it's kind of limited in scope. So you have to look for these uh, gems on the DMs Guild if you want to, to use them. And James, of course, wrote in Dragon Heist and Dungeon of the Mad Mage. So um, it's just following along in a plot thread that he's already steeped in um, to, to take it to this next level. Yeah, it's pretty great. Mm -hmm. So what's next, Sean? Next is another new adventure up on the DMs Guild called Krenko's Way. 
it is an adventure that uses material from the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, which should be out in the wild by the time this episode drops, if it's not already. Uh, so it's it's an official wizard's adventure, although it's only available on the DMs Guild, written by Chris Tulak, a uh, employee of Wizards who was once working on the D&D team, then moved over to the Magic team, and so he has his feet in both worlds. The blurb for the adventure is the notorious goblin crime boss Krenko has escaped confinement in the Uzio prison under suspicious circumstances. Now he plots to reestablish control over his criminal enterprise, raising the specter of a goblin gang war that could jeopardize the tenuous peace among the guilds. You must find Krenko and secure him before all-out war ensues. An introductory adventure for first-level characters. Sean, so, Sean, you know what I really love about this? Yeah. It's all the proceeds go to Extra Life. That's right. Uh, everything that Wizards would get, which I believe is now... Uh, because Chris works for Wizards, probably about 70% of the um, the funds for it will go to Extra Life. So I also bring this up because they recently announced that not only on the DMs Guild can you create content for the Forgotten Realms and for Ravenloft and for Eberron, now you can also create uh, adventures content for Ravnica. So for all you magic fans out there who are also D&D fans and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for the two to merge, now you can merge them. Go do your thing. Uh, go download the content guidelines and FAQ for DM Skilled Creators. Pick up some art packs and go go to it. Do your thing. You just have to remember that you can't use artwork from Magic the Gathering uh, in your own products. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> So tell me about Hasbro Game Centers. So on EN World uh, a few days ago, they put up a story that Hasbro had entered a licensing agreement with a company called Kilburn Live. Kilburn Live is a global play and entertainment company that does um, kind of entertainment experiences, live entertainment experiences. So... When I think of this, what comes to mind is kind of the um, in in malls, especially in in Buffalo, they've started putting in these like escape rooms, mm -hmm. but kind of more interactive. Yeah, more kind of uh, I don't know, uh, less sedate. You know, an escape room is usually you go in, you have an hour, and you kind of look at things. There are some more active ones, mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm seeing this and right now the the talks are only to uh create these interactive uh experiences in a high energy gamified environment with multiple activity zones and so they talked about you know my little pony and mr potato head and gi joe and clue and battleship and hungry hippos and trivial pursuit and other um hasbro licensed products to turn these into interactive experiences that you can go to with your family and you don't need to have a vivid imagination to think hey you know what you can do that with all of these other things but you know what's perfect for that D D, right if you're going to have a store in a mall or you know at some shop somewhere that has all these interactive experiences with those other brands 
why not have a, a an open table of D&D to play? Yeah, that that would be a cool thing. I'm, is it, you think that's the kind of stuff that they're talking about? I feel like they're talking about about things that are slightly different from that. But um... the, They are talking about... I mean, yes, right now what was mentioned in this press release was opening and operating Hasbro-themed family entertainment centers across the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. Right. So probably what they're talking about is more sedate than what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But, but it could be a thing. I, it, I'm with you. It definitely could be a thing because, you know, right now, retail is king, but it's slipping. And what you need to take it to the next level is not just selling things, but selling experiences. Yes, I agree with that 100%. And so that's why we're seeing uh, the Build-A-Bear workshop, right, is a great example. You can go in and you can buy a bear. But the experience is not just buying it, but building it and all of the the little catchy st- things that they do, the songs they sing and the make a wish and you put the heart in the bear and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, that takes it to the next level and makes it an experience rather than just a purchase. Yeah. Finding a bunch of like a gamified or game uh, gamey situations and, and interactive experiences that you can go in and enjoy with your family, whatever they are, be it video games like Dave and Buster's or whatever, or mm-hmm. um, whatever it happens to be, especially like Battleship Hungry Hunger Hippos, like a, a large size Hungry Hunger Hippo game. That would be fun for the family to play, I would think, even though that game is not the greatest game ever. It's still got a kind of a, a value entertainment thing to it, right? Sure. So, and, right. So then, then you can get people into a place like that, and then of course they'll they'll pay for whatever so those experiences are, and then of course those a bit of a shop that goes along with that, and they can buy they can sell their their product out of that shop too. Yep. So again, although D and D wasn't mentioned specifically, um, if you're talking about delivering an experience rather than just delivering a product, that is D and D. That's what D and D is all about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, I, I don't see why they wouldn't figure out something with that, especially in the coming. Uh, years as D&D becomes more and more ubiquitous. Yep. So we, we'll see, but I just wanted to throw it out there for those who keep an eye on Hasbro and you know their dealings in the game world. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm mm-hmm. very curious to see what this uh, these things look like, right? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. All right, let's talk about uh, Twitter. Okay, so discussion. I... Yeah, if, if people aren't aware, if you follow me on Twitter... I try to every weekday put up a D&D tip for players, for DMs, for creators, whatever. And I, the other day I put up one that said, don't write what you know, although that's, you know, you're, the common writing uh, line is write what you know. Instead of writing what you know, write from what you know toward what you don't know, what you are trying to learn. Um, I found that you, when you surprise and delight yourself with something new that you create, you can't help but delight your players in that same vein. And I had a response from Matthew Petard who said, uh, what about people who write for settings without a solid base of knowledge? I've run many scenarios where the author obviously doesn't have knowledge of the setting and thus write their writing reflects that. And I think we're talking about two different things here. Um, so I just wanted to address this quickly. Um, I, did, I didn't say don't know things. Right. You should if you're writing for a setting, especially if you're writing some official content, you obviously should know what you're writing. Um, but even in that case, you don't have to be a, a, a slave to canon. 
right? You can start with what is known about the world and then write towards something new. That is that is a way to, again, satisfy people who are into canon while delighting and surprising people as you go off into a new direction. So, Actually, it's the way to make popular things. Yes. Because nobody exactly wants right. the same thing that we've seen constantly. What yeah. people, and here you go, everybody is a little bit of thing about like marketing and, and creating things that people will eventually buy and, and consume and enjoy is you want something that looks and is seems familiar but has something slightly different about it so that it feels unique and novel without mm-hmm. being um uh derivative and that's right. tricky it's hard yeah. to do right like that that's not a that's, there's no formula for it mm-hmm. um but like that's that's the kind of thing that you're looking for and when you run into it then you you know it right sure yeah i mean nostalgia sells but it doesn't sell as well as nostalgia plus new and in- innovative ideas. Uh-huh. That's um New Voltron is amazing on mm-hmm. Netflix okay. because it is nostalgic for all the Voltron fans, mm-hmm. but it is actually telling so the, that old Voltron show is like Monster of the Week, right? Right. Um New Voltron show is a space opera. Mhm. So it's like, "Oh, I know Star Wars and I have all the trappings of Star Wars in here, but it's Voltron." Right. But it doesn't it doesn't feel like Star Wars, but it might as well be Star Wars, but it's really just Voltron, right? Like yep. it's yep. got all that stuff in it. It's really good and it's really well done and that's why it's popular. Mm-hmm. Um it's got it's got all those things working for it. So that's 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 kinda how that works. Um there's a whole I've I've read a whole bunch of stuff on and listened to a whole bunch of books and podcasts on like how to make things that are popular. It's yep. not easy. But no. that's that's why you that's that's what Sean is talking about. I mean, it's not why Sean is talking about it, but that is what Sean is talking about. He's, t- he's talking about taking something that you understand and putting some things that you don't understand or don't know about that to make something that is actually unique because it's how we make new and unique things. Yep. So, Matthew, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that question. I hope my answer helped uh, helped illuminate what I meant to say uh, in the long run. It's fun for me because I got to do my little aside. There you go. <laughs> All right, let's get to our main topic. We're going to talk about Dragon Heist. This is part five. Chapter four, Dragon Season, part one. So this section of the text focuses on the hunt for the Stone of Galore. This is, this is pretty much the rest of the adventure, actually. True. So it begins with the setup. Um, the Nimble Rite, that's the thing from last time. Um, the Nimble Rite has the stone, and it has delivered the stone to a villain, and that's dependent on which one you picked at the beginning. So if it's Xanathar, it's delivered to a Grinda Garloth, and she is hanging out in an apparatus of a Kowalsh. If it's delivered to the uh, Casa Lanters, it's in their family crypt. If it's delivered to Jarlaxle, it's gone to a Fenris Storm Castle, who's a criminal. And if it's for Manchun, or your, your villains in that th- Manchun, then it's delivered to uh, Thrakus, who is a dragonborn, who is a butcher, who chops up people at times to hide them for the Zentarum. It's good work if you can find it. Yeah, it's totally good work if you can find it, and you don't have a problem chopping people up. Well, yeah, there's that too. So at the beginning, with the nimble right, it is the the DM's job to point the player characters at the nimble right, and you have a couple of options if they can't find them. You can um, use the watch to inform them, or if they mm-hmm. go to the watch to ask them for help, they can tell them after a little while, or you can send them to that um, that church, the church that I, the church of the something hands. Yep. I forget what what it's called actually yeah the church but, of gond the house yeah, of the wonder tr- the house of wonder that they had a specific name that i just can't remember okay. um they have that tracker that nimble right tracker mm-hmm. so that that can lead you to the nimble right 
And then yep. you are led to the nimble right, which is in an alley somewhere. And then you fight it to the death. And then the watch shows up and doesn't really care that much that you killed this nimble right because, you know, it's a construct, doesn't have rights. Mm-hmm. So it's like a little flavor piece. But on the nimble right, they find the map that Lady Galhund, Grawlhund, uh, gave the nimble right to, to deliver the item. And it points them to the next location, which starts a series of encounters which chain. Mm-hmm. So did I miss anything so far? That sounds pretty much like exactly what happens. Yeah. Uh, what? So this setup part, what do you think of it? Like, it, it seems functional, right? It seems fine. Yeah, it's 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 not as uh, flowery. It's not as intricate as it could be. But in some ways, that's better. Oh, no, that's fine because it's yep. about to get crazy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and I think it's good, too, because... Everything that's happened before in the first three chapters has been so chaotic, and it has been a lot of work on the DM to make sure all the pieces fit together well. That you don't, you want a nice funnel that easily leads the characters to this hunt for the stone. Mm-hmm. So you, you you don't want a lot of drama with the nimble right. You can certainly add it if you so choose, but. I think the the writers here make the point that it's going to get crazy as it is, so just go. Yes. So let's talk about how this gets crazy and how this section works. So this is the next section with the encounters and whatnot. Yep. So depending on the villain, that determines the season. So it could be spring, fall, summer, winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a rough outline of eight encounters for whichever season that you chose. Now... This this outline of encounters, this chain of encounters, leads the PCs to finding the Stone of Galore and finding the Vault of Dragons. That is mm-hmm. the purpose of each of these, uh, of this whole section. Right. So each season then has a summary for what's going on because each villain's a little different. Mm-hmm. So it's you know a good you know three or four paragraphs of what what's actually happening. Happening. Um, then each season has its own weather effect, which has a mechanical implication, which I think is pretty neat. That helps mm-hmm. to, to differentiate things. Sure. There's this handy flow chart for the different seasons. They're just mm-hmm. like straight lines that go down, but it tells you, tells you how they go from different encounter to different encounter. Right. Um, let's talk about these encounters for a second. So there, if I remember correctly, there are 10 encounters. There are 10. I just yes. want to make one one point here, just in case it didn't wasn't clear. Sure. These chains um, differ from season to season. They do. So there, yes. are, there are 10 encounters. When you choose a season, you will play eight of the 10, and these encounters are reused for each chain. So, yes. um, so encounter one is in an alleyway. Uh-huh. But uh, that's if, not where the chains right. tend to start in the spring. That is the seventh encounter, even mm-hmm. though it's encounter one in the summer. The first, uh, encounter is actually the fourth encounter, uh, in the autumn. It is the first encounter. And then in winter, it's the second encounter. So even though they are labeled 1 through 10, um, they're going to be in different orders depending on which season you use. Yeah. Since you, since you went there, let's talk about how that works. Okay. So each of these encounters, they have a map. And then if an encounter is used in one of the season flowcharts, it has a description for what occurs there aside from the general description of the area. So there's like a general description of the area, and then there's like, okay, this is the summer section for this map. Right. 
Um, it's a really clever use of the map and encounter idea and how it can be utilized in different ways. So you have this generalized map that's kind of, they're generally pretty sizable. Some of them are smaller, but um, some of them are larger. And not everyone has a map. There's a couple of chases in there, and those mm-hmm. don't have maps because, right. you know, why do you need a map for a chase? Right. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me, at least for uh, for this game anyway. Uh, so so that's how they're structured, and it's pretty cool, I think, because it gives you that flexibility. Um, so, so that's how the encounters are set up. Now, the uh, the encounter flow, it starts with wherever the Nimblerite delivered the stone. So then, And then after that, it has a number of complications related to the situation described in the summary, and they go from like people not wanting to give up the stone to people stealing the stone to the stone getting lost to the stone not wanting to be where it is because it's intelligent itself. It's, it's really kind of crazy because yep. you know, that's how these things happen, right? Right, and, and that's a very important point is the, the characters might gain access to the stone well before they've played all eight of those encounters. Mm-hmm. And if they do... The built-in story slash game mechanic to force them to continue along the path is that this stone is intelligent and it can take control of the character. Yes. So a, a character that has it um, and, until the story is ready for the characters to move along, this stone will make the characters character who holds it um, do things that they don't want to do. Yep, that's a thing. Uh, so we were talking about how this the, the middle of this is like all this crazy stuff happens because mm-hmm. it can like it's that's kind of how ha- what, what happens when there's like different factions that want this thing and different people that end up having their hands on the stone that start betraying people. Yep, that's kind of the thing that happens. Yeah, uh, but it all is supposed to technically it doesn't have to, but it can usually end up with the PCs having the stone and then attuning with the stone and then learning where the vault of dragons is. That so is that correct. Is, that is the flow of how this thing tends to work. Um, there's a sidebar for if the bad guys get the stone instead and what happens then, mm-hmm. which is really good, which is basically the bad guys get the stone, they have it for several days until they can figure out uh, how to attune with it themselves, and then they go to the Vault of Dragons. Yep. And um, to be just, just to really be thorough here, um, there are chapters that describe the hideouts of each of the villains. Yeah, we'll talk about some of those too. Yeah, just, just so... One thing that could happen is the villain could get the stone, then the characters would have to go to the hideout of those villains to retrieve it. Yeah, there's um, even a, there's even some suggestions that if the villains get the gold, you can just go steal the gold from the villain's lair. This is true. Yep. Um, there's also some advice that says you don't have to run the encounters in the order that they're presented, because mm-hmm. the PCs will inevitably do something that you didn't expect. So you... This is not like a hard, fast thing. Like you are supposed to adjust, modify, and rearrange as needed, depending on the actions of your characters in your game. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really good. I'm glad they said that because some yes. people get get confused about stuff like that. Right. But also, and also remember that um, if you're looking at an encounter in this section, you're only going to use a quarter of it, basically. Yes, that right. is true. Um, and you could actually read over the other ones and decide, oh, I like those enemies better. So use that. Just remember to follow up on any of the story points that would change if you did that and bring them back around to the story you're telling. Mm-hmm. So this this goes on, though. So once you find the location of the vault from the stone, you realize that you need three keys um, to get to open the door. Now, these keys are not keys. They're, there are three varied and interesting items that need to be gathered to you together to open the door. 
mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of choices about what the keys could be. In fact, there's like a D6 randomizer that you can use if you want, or just pick the ones that you think are cool. Yep. But there's like um, there's 18 choices in that chart, mm-hmm. so that's kind of cool. Like, and some of them are like uh, a platinum or adamantium bar with a thousand gold pieces, a a bolt holder's eye stock, yep, a um, a bronze dragon scale, mm-hmm. stuff like that, right? Or a unicorn. You know, or, a, or a unicorn, right? Just because they're lying around. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, they're just lying around. Oh man, sorry, you said unicorn. I just recently watched. Um, I was watching Legends of Tomorrow, and there's like an episode with a unicorn in it, and oh. the unicorn's like a vicious, terrible thing that like punctures people uh, with its horn and then eats their hearts. I like it. I know, right? It's freaking terrifying. Sign me up. Yeah. So then, um, at the end of that chapter is the final dungeon, which is the Vault of Dragons. And then the PCs have to traverse it and find the coins, find the Dragon Vault, uh, or the hoard of coins, I should say, once they open the door. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's the section, right? Yep. Yeah, it is... Um, we. It, I didn't think it was wise to do more than that today because we would have been sitting here talking about, you know, ten different encounters or eight different encounters. And we're right. going to do that next week. Right. So... Uh, like I said, over the next couple of weeks, we're, we'll cover one of the seasons. We're going to talk about spring because that's the Xanathar. And I think uh, the Xanathar guilds the, is fascinating. As much as I like Axel, I thought that one was kind of convoluted and not as uh, not as interesting to me as the Xanathar one. Yep. So um, we'll walk through how that looks and the, the Vault of Dragons. I think we could probably do that. All right. Um, well, Sean, before we get out of here, I'm going to ask you one more question. Okay. So what are you thankful for this holiday season? Oh, boy. I really, uh, what I am thankful for is to have the luxury and the time to create games, to talk with people about games, to play games, uh, and just to, just to, that we live in a time and a place where story matters. And not only does it matter, not only do people love stories, whether they're getting them through books or television or streams or however, but that they can make a difference in people's lives. Um, so that's what I'm thankful for. How about you, Chris? Um, you can actually go and listen to misdirected Mark. Uh, that came out yesterday. Well, when, when you hear this, it'll come out yesterday. Cause I talked a whole bot, a bunch about what I was thankful for. All so right. I would, I would suggest you folks go listen to misdirected Mark and hear what me, Phil and Bob are all thankful for on that show. Cause you know I what else I'm thankful for. I'm thankful that uh, when by the time this drops, I will probably be on my way to PAX Unplugged. I just remembered I know. with Bob Everson. Yeah, Bob's going. That was that was a uh, pleasant surprise. So if you're hearing this and you're going to be at PAX Unplugged, go find a uh, Phil and, and not Phil. Go find Bob and go find Sean and uh, say hi. Yep, I will be wandering around looking for things to do. All right. Well, with that, I will say thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Let's do a few Patreon shoutouts before we get out of here. Uh, Ryan Bolter, Space Rhino, I hope the Space Hamster is uh, doing well. Steve Bissonette, The Closet Gamer, Todd Crapper, the best name in gaming, Troy Pitchelman, uh, Toimo Tetsu Okoye, and Wayne Peterson. Thank you so much for being our patrons. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website. And for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Um, I've also been drawing a lot of maps lately and releasing them via Patreon. I'm trying to learn that Dyson style of map making. It's going pretty well. Got an iPad with my, uh, or got Procreate on my iPad and been drawing that way. Nice. Well, you're going to start seeing more of Chris's maps in some of the adventures that I do. So get a, keep a lookout for them. 
And, and for $4 a month, uh, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get to see our pre-production show notes, and you get access to our Slack room for life. Where you can talk directly with us. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you can always reach out to us on Twitter and whatnot, but I'm definitely in the Slack room a lot more than that, and on, on that that platform. Yep, and if you at me, I will be there in moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't help us out monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those help even if you're not listening via Apple Podcasts, since many other podcatchers use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank shows, and that would make us more visible. Mm-hmm. So, so sure. Chris, no, I'm going to ask you this time. Where can we find you on the internet, Chris? Uh, you can find me at Misdirected Mark on Twitter. You can also go to the website where you can catch other great shows such as this one, uh, Misdirected Mark, the Misdirected Mark podcast. Um, myself, Phil, and Bob go live every Tuesday evening at 845 Eastern to break down and get inside games, game mastering, playing games, and whatever else in an, an effort to entertain and inform you. Sean, mm-hmm. where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or if you want to hear what the Mad Wizards is up to, you can follow him at Menagerie Wizard. And you can always talk to us on the Down with D&D G Plus community. And Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Sean, what are we going to do now? We're going to go kill some water deep monsters. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Get down with D&D. Yeah, 